Good morning. Okay, we're gonna do it one more time because it helps me get my breath. Good morning. Okay, I wanna actually start out this morning by asking you guys a question. And here's my question that I have for you. Just because something is a mystery, does that mean that it's not true? That's my question. And I don't know if the reason I've been thinking a lot about this lately is because my kid and I have watched Now You See Me, Now You Don't, and it talks about like, oh, and then it's unveiled and it's not this magic thing that happened, actually there's an explanation. Or if it's because when I was a kid, I used to sing this song that was, who took the cookie from the cookie jar? Who, me, yeah, me, then who? And you go around, it was this big, mysterious, weird song that had no ending. Um, I don't know if that was the case. I do remember though that one mysterious thing in my life was that I thought that Santa brought presents and put them under the tree and that if you were just good all year long that then Christmas Eve there was this magical night and this mystery and this idea that Santa would fly all over the world and he would wrap these packages and they'd be for all the good boys and girls and then the reality and when that mystery becomes solved I remember that kind of jolting me into like some sadness because Santa is not real and mom and dad, it turns out, were just signing cards for him and putting them under our tree themselves. But is that the case for all mysteries? I mean, just because something's a mystery, does that mean that it's not true? I mean, what about the mystery of the universe? The universe is a very mysterious thing. I have a really good friend named Arnisha, and she is obsessed with studying the universe. She just thinks it's one of the coolest topics in the world. And partly because she loves to study and there's never getting to the bottom of it. And if you were to go in Arnisha's house in her living room, right above where her TV is, there's actually a poster of the universe. And she, last, I was there last Monday, and this past Monday, and she said, Morgan, check this out. <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever. And I go over, and she's showing me this picture of this universe, and it's all these spots in this big, giant picture. And she said, Morgan, this is just what we know. This is a picture of the universe. And this is just what we know as humans and can comprehend as humans of the universe. There could be more out there that we don't know about. In fact, there probably is more out there that we can't comprehend. And let me tell you, it takes this many light years to get from one side to the other. It's so big, we're never gonna understand all the intricacies that are in it. In fact, look closely at this picture, Morgan. You can't even see our galaxy in it. That's how big it is. So just because something's a mystery, it doesn't mean that it's not true. Womanhood, biblical Womanhood is a mystery to this world. What it, fun what it fundamentally means to be woman is kept secret for most of us. And it's certainly by the world it goes unexplained and unknown. I mean, just think about that question for a minute. I've asked several women over the last few months, what does it mean to be a woman? Certainly it means something. But the more I dig into this, questions of, this question of what it means to be woman, the more I realize that the answer to this question in its deepest form is a truth that is unknowable except by divine revelation. 
Now, I'm not simply asking, what is a woman's role? Although that's a really important question too, and I would love to talk to you about that if, if you want later on this week. And just um, for your information, the Bible talks about, a lot about women's roles in Ephesians 5 and in First and Second Timothy and First and Second Peter and in Titus 2 and in Proverbs 31, and I could go on and on and on. There's a lot that it has to say about that. But I'm trying to ask a deeper question here. I mean, how do you really know what a woman's role is until you know what a woman is? So I think the better question seems to be, what is a woman? What is her design and why has God put her in our midst? I think that God does reveal this to us by his spirit in his word, and in his community, his bride, his church. So, it's probably best to approach this mystery with prayer for God to reveal to us this morning the answer to this question. What has God made women to be? Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the people in this room. Uh, when we think about the essence of who we are, who you designed us to be, we can get so lost so quickly. Lord, I just pray that you help us see who you formed us to be for your glory and our benefit. Amen. We've been in the book of Matthew, like Brady had said, and we, we actually are pressing pause in the book of Matthew 19, in the chapter 19, okay? And the, what's happening here is basically Pharisees are, are approaching Jesus to test him. And they're gonna test him with a question. And the question they ask has to do with divorce, this idea of divorce. And I think it's interesting that God doesn't just jump into an explanation of divorce here. Actually, his response to the Pharisees, he begins with this response. He says, haven't you read in the scriptures? In the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And then he says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's interesting that God takes this question that they're pressing him with and he points back to his original design. The first distinction God makes in scripture is that he made human beings in his image distinct from one another by creating them male and female. This is referring to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then after this distinction, that's kind of in the creation account, he then goes to chapter two where he explains more, more fully how it happened. So we're actually gonna pick up in chapter two, verse 18 right now. It says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I think that as, I'm gonna pause, I think as women, sometimes we hear this word helper and what we imagine in our minds are our little, our little kids that might be like on a stool beside us helping us bake cookies or something. And so it makes us feel very inferior and like we have less um, to contribute to the actual making of cookies. And, and that's not what this word helper is describing in the text. In fact, the word helper in the Old Testament is most often used of God. It's most often used of God being a help to his people. Therefore, it cannot possibly indicate inferiority or subordination. That's not what the word helper is referring to here. And then when you take the rest of the phrase, helper fit for him, what that's talking about is it's saying in correspondence to Adam. 
You see, Adam had been looking at the animals and naming the animals, and there's nothing in correspondence to him. So in course, a helper fit for him, as in men- mentally, physically, spiritually, as opposed to the animals that have surrounded him. Let's go back to the text. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's interesting, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and bird of the air. And it says this, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Same phrase again. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word here for woman is a word pronounced isha, I-S-H-S-H-A-H, okay, (laughs) isha, that's how you pronounce it. And it basically just means what it says, woman or wife, okay? And it's taken from a word that is shorter, the word ish, which is referring to and which means man or husband. So I think it's interesting that it is this idea of taking one from the other, but then they're both given distinct words and distinct names that are different, okay? I just think it's an interesting thing to note. And then it says this after we, after we have that verse, it says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I want to go back for a second to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. For the sake of the difference between the Hebrew words female and male, as well as God making mankind in his image. Because woman and man stem from the same word, but actually female and male are two completely different words in the Hebrew. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along, along the ground. Interesting, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, not produced from the ground, but in our image, our pattern, and in our likeness with similarity and potential. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The, female, the word female here is a word pronounced nekavah. And nekavah is translated in the English as to bore through. That's the definition. It's someone that has been, something that has been open and can now be entered. And we know that that refers to physically how a woman is built, right? We know that's referred to sexually, how this whole thing works. But it has to be more than that because it also says at the beginning of the passage that God says, let us make mankind in our image. And God, I don't know if you know this, he's not a physical thing. 
He's not a physical being. And so I think there's more to this idea of male and female being made in his image than just a physical thing. So let's just clarify this and rehash the high points real quick. Helper does not mean a child on a stool helping mom bake cookies, okay? It's most referred to as God helping his people. And therefore, it's not stating that women have any less value or worth or input than men. Isha is the word for woman, and it just means woman or wife. And then there's this word, nekavah, which is the word, English word for female, and it is literally means to bore through. I want you to remember this idea of how God designed us male and female and the meaning of female because of this. Our primary goal in this world is to glorify God. We do this by revealing God to others. And we primarily reveal God to others in the way that we relate with one another. Therefore, as a woman, we relate in a feminine way. By design, we will feel feel most alive when we relate to men, women, and children in a way that reveals something wonderful about God, something wonderful about how he relates that we were specifically designed as women to make known. Now, after saying this, I need to go back to the beginning real quick. Biblical womanhood is a mystery to the world. The primary reason being that the world says that you are at your center. Our sinful nature is bent to operate out of a selfish, selfish, selfish desire. Self-actualization and self-centeredness is the way of the world. But if our passion is to reveal God to others at any cost to ourselves, then that must require that our self-obsession give way to God-obsession. I actually had an advantage in seeing this played out in my life. I was saturated with godly women growing up. And that was a big blessing for for me with my grandparents and with my aunts and with several of you that are out there, with my mom. I just had this picture of what it means to be a godly woman. And yet, and yet, I still lived in this world. I still took in things and was, I was put, an impression was put upon me by this culture. And I remember when I was younger thinking that this idea that equality was always entitled, that was an entitled thing, and that it meant that to be equal to a man meant that I basically should be like a man. I should fight like a girl. I remember having lots lots of shirts saying that or with funny little catchphrases on the back about how girls can play sports as good as guys. I remember thinking that I should run as fast as guys and I should jump as high as guys, that I should be a boss. Power and strength were words most associated of what I heard from the world meant it meant to be a woman. I remember watching TV shows or watching movies, and if a guy said something that that wasn't right to a woman, I remember watching a woman smack him in the face and tear him up and tear him down. And I remember thinking, that's a woman. I remember thinking that as a kid. And I also remember the day that that changed for me. 
the moment that idea completely shifted for me. I was in high school, and I, I was 16 or 17, and my mom, I don't know if any of you guys have teenagers, but we are really busy when we are teenagers, and so my mom had this rule. I only wanna to go to Walmart once a week, and I plan all the meals when I go to Walmart that once a week, so I get all the ingredients I'm gonna need for those meals, and then I shift them around based on who's gonna be here when. And so she wants to know if I bought enough of this to feed the whole family, then I wanna cook it on a night the whole family's gonna be here. And so she had this rule, and it was before we left for school, we needed to tell her if we were going to be home for dinner or not. Are you going to be at basketball? Are you going to be home? Are you going to be with your friends? Are you going to be home? Are you going to be working out? Or are you going to be home? And so we do that every day. And this particular day, it turns out me and my brothers were all going to be home for dinner. Although my oldest brother typically wanted to know what was for dinner before he would tell us if he was going to be home or not. But we were all going to be home for dinner. And my dad said, hey, I'm not going to be home for dinner. I am, well, I'll be home, but I'm not going to be hungry because um, I'm going to go work out after work, which is normal for him to do. And then when I come home, I'm not really hungry. And so don't worry about me. Mom said, okay, great. Mom came home from work and she started making dinner and she made barbecue chicken wings that night. And when she made barbecue chicken wings, it smelled up the whole entire house because it had to be in the oven for quite some time. And so the smell was wafting through the air and you could feel your stomach growling. Everybody was getting hungrier and hungrier, waiting for my mom to say the magic words, which were, supper's ready. And so all of us could run into the kitchen. Um, and she did. She said, guys, supper's ready. Come and get it. Fix your plate. And then we were all going to go to the living room because we didn't do a great job of eating at the table when we were teenagers. But we were going to go into the living room and enjoy our time together. And um, we go in the kitchen, we get our plates, we get our chicken wings, we get our sides, and we go back in the living room. And I'm watching it, I'm just kind of observing why I'm doing this, and I go back into the living room, and I look up, and I see my mom go to the refrigerator and pull out things to make herself a sandwich. And I just remember thinking, what's going on? And then I realized, ah, my dad, not intentionally at all, just had become hungry and went and got in line and got himself some food. And my mom had planned to feed four, not five that night. And so she found herself at the refrigerator making herself a sandwich. And without even saying a word about it to anyone, I asked my dad. She never said anything to him about it. She made herself the sandwich and she came into the living room and she enjoyed a meal with her kids. You see, when I look at Beyonce, I want to be independent, I want to be sexy, I want to be queen. When I look at Oprah, I want to attain as much power and money as I can. When I, when I look at Hillary Clinton, I kind of want to rule America with a woman's power fist in the air. But when I look at my mama, I want to worship God. I see in her the way that Christ serves his church by the way that she serves our family. And it makes me want to worship. And that is fundamentally different than the women in this world. And God sees my mom and he says, now that's a woman. But guys, my mom, she is a mystery to this world. They just don't get it. God designed us to reveal something about him in order that our lives 
point to him and he is glorified in every single area. It's for his glory and our benefit that we are designed this way. When you are at your center, when you're self-centered and you're operating that way, like the world is, then as a woman, you're gonna find yourself controlling, guarded, defensive, power hungry, broken, and empty. But when you live with Christ in your center, then as a woman, you're gonna find yourself relating to people invitationally, openly, courageously, and you're going to find freedom in the way that you deal with others. And you're gonna find yourself satisfied, content, and full. The world says you are at your center. And if you operate like that as a woman, you will be controlling. You'll be entitled. I think an example of this could be um, even women in here that we, we struggle with this, even as women who want to follow God, right? It might be a wife that just desperately wants her husband to lead their family spiritually. She desperately wants him to make Sunday mornings a priority for their family. She desperately wants him to have devotions with their kids and to lead in that way. But here's the problem, is sometimes we want these right things, but we want them by our standards as women. And so we want him to do those things, but then if he's gonna confront me on my sin, mm, not so much, not okay with that. And I'm gonna buck up, right? Or if he's gonna say, hey, I think we need to relook at how we're spending our money because we need to be giving more to the kingdom and to the church. Uh, I don't know if I wanna do all that. I had all these awesome plans for our, for our vacation or I had these things I really wanted to buy for my kids because it's just so perfect for them. We can't do that. Like maybe here's a hypothetical, okay? Let's say that you have had conversations uh, with your spouse about leading and, and it's been good and it's been challenging and it's been right and the, and the motives are pure and you've noticed that he has actually started doing that in your house, okay? And let's say making church on Sunday mornings is a big priority for you, for you guys. And you've seen him do that over and over and it's become a priority for your family by the way your husband is leading you guys to do that. And then one Saturday, you have a long day. And so you wake up Sunday morning and you find that you overslept and you are rushing to get ready. And your husband, leading, says, all right, I'm gonna get the kids ready. You, you just stay in here and get yourself ready. I'm gonna go ahead and jump in and get everybody ready to go. And you walk out, since you're late, and you walk out to the kitchen to load everybody up in the car and say, I'm ready to go. And you notice that he, your husband, has put an outfit on your son that does not match fully, or at least not how you would have chosen it to match. And you see your daughter and her hair is kind of in disarray. And it looks like he tried to maybe put a barrette on her, but it's like hanging off on the end. He didn't know it goes up here to hold her hair back, okay? Or maybe they're eating donuts and you're thinking, are you kidding me? We should never give our kids donuts at 7 a.m. in the morning. Who's gonna deal with them this afternoon? What do you do as a woman? What do you do? If God is at your center, then you are able to walk in that room and see those things that are not in your way of how you would have done it, but you are able to look at your husband and know what he has done for your family and you're able to say thank you and you're able to mean it. But if you're at your center and you really need to control the situation, 
you're probably gonna find yourself taking your son's hand and taking him back to his room and changing his clothes. You might take your daughter's hair down and refix it. You might say to your husband, as you're on your way to church, something along the lines of, you're gonna deal with him this afternoon because you gave him sugar. God is not at the core of a controlling woman. At the core of a controlling woman is herself. Or maybe you're not married. I mean, are you just a woman who constantly changes how people have to do things to meet how you think they ought to be done? Are you a passenger seat driver? Do you constantly correct people on which way they're going because they should take that other route because it makes more sense and it's quicker or they should pass or they should, don't you need, you're gonna have turn left up here and just pick, 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 pick. Or maybe you have kids and they're doing their chores the best that they can, but they always put those coffee, those coffee cups in the wrong thing. If they don't go in their own cupboard, they don't go with the other cups. Do you constantly just, no, they don't go there, they go over here. Or do you just say, thank you, I'm so glad that you are helping serve in this way. At the core of a controlling woman is herself. She does not look to trust God to find her worth or her purpose. And so she has to manipulate and control every situation that she finds herself in. The controlling woman justifies her sin as a means to keep control. At her core, she, at her core, it's herself, not God. At her core, she doesn't want to submit to the authority of God. She wants to be in charge of herself. She finds herself being her own authority, and she wants to keep it that way. We all have some of this in us, all of us. It's the helpless cry of an infant that morphs into the entitled demand of the toddler. It's, please be with me, I need you, that changes to, be there for me, I insist. God is not at the heart of a controlling woman. She does not relate to others to show God's love, but to meet her own needs. Do you have your guard up? Maybe you've been wronged by a father or a boyfriend or a husband, by a mother or a sister or a friend, deeply, deeply wounded. Remember, You were designed to bring glory to God. So this means that you should be seeking opportunities to be open and vulnerable. Don't forget that what you are inviting people to is to see the invitational nature of God and the way that he cares for us. So this does not mean, what I'm not saying is that you lack discernment and you open yourself up to whatever comes your way. No, I'm saying that you open yourself up always to the things that bring glory to God and reveal his nature by the way you relate to others. You should not be open to anything that doesn't reveal God's nature to others and bring glory to God. So here's an example. Let's say you have a gossiping friend and it seems like the only conversation you can have with this friend is about somebody else. You can't ever just have a conversation about how your week's going, how your day's going, but it always has to be about somebody else. 
You don't continue to invite that friend into a conversation about others, but you speak truth to them about gossip and slander and the way that God uses us to build up the body and be peacemakers. You confront the sin and you point them to God's truth in a gentle and a humble way. You lower your guard and you know what your guard really is? It's the fear of confronting your friend because you may lose that friend or she may turn around and go gossip about you. But you lower that guard and you choose to act courageously in order to relate to your friend the truth about who God is and what he says. And in this circumstance, the way to bring glory to God is to speak his truth and let his truth be an invitation to repentance. And your guard remains down because you do risk something. You risk losing a friend in the process. You risk them seeing what truth you have to offer and choosing to go somewhere else for what they want. It is risky. But if you are on guard and unwilling to open yourself up to someone for the glory of God, to reveal God and the way that he relates, then you are at your center. And you most likely find yourself extremely emotional (laughs) because when you stop and examine your life, you realize that, man, I am extremely proud or extremely disappointed at what I see because it's always you there. Are you defensive? If you wanna be just like a man, you are probably on the defense from an unjust way that women were indeed treated in our history. You've swung far to the other side. Chances are you've so strongly focused on either the role of women or equal rights of women that you've given little thought to the unique opportunities for women and the way that God designed them. Oftentimes, the defensive woman seeks to guard herself, to protect herself because something unjust and ungodly has happened to her in her past. A father who never really saw you growing up. Abuse of any kind. A friend who you tried to be there for to really help, to really open yourself up for, and they saw what you had to offer and they chose to go somewhere else. An invitation to someone with no response. Typically, a woman who is on the defense has been hurt deeply and therefore tends to think of the worst possibility in everyone in order to protect herself from being further hurt. She might think that she's vulnerable, but she is always on the defense, never, never opening herself up for fear of being rejected. But when you do this, you risk being disobedient when God calls you to be open for someone for his glory because in this moment, you go into this defense mode because yourself is at your center and yourself needs defending. 
and you're afraid of the rejection that you might receive because of awful things that have happened in your past. And so you shut down when God calls you to act and when God calls you to be vulnerable. I could go on and on and on and I would still not cover every situation in the room. But please hear me. The point is this. When you really examine your life, are you at your center or is Christ at your center? Is your life self-directed or God-directed? God created us as women to be invitational and this will continue to be a mystery to the world. But do you know what else is a mystery to the world? Christ. Christ. He never closed his heart to anyone. He never refused to offer life-giving love, even when doing so required him to will his own death. Do you want that kind of Christ formed in you? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. An invitation with no response. Are you willing to let go of control and open yourself up in the face of inviting someone and no one comes? He had no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty that we should desire him. A man may refuse to enter a heart of a beautifully feminine woman. A man may be blind to the beauty of Christ in her soul. Do you still want Christ formed in you anyways? A husband already committed by his covenant promise and his marriage vows, he may sinfully turn away from you as an open and nourishing wife, finding it easier to enjoy the satisfaction of success in his workplace, of ministry achievements, of spiritual disciplines, or of pornographic pleasures. Do you still want Christ formed in you as a wife anyways? A Christian man who even wants to be a good father may not realize his lack of meaningful involvement in his daughter. He may not even know that it's, that it's necessary. So maybe he comes home and instead of really seeing you, he turns on the television because that's more relaxing to him. You may be tempted at times to feel that you have no beauty worth fighting for. Do you still want Christ formed in you as a daughter? Friends that you have, both men and women, may love to hang out around you because you are fun and your personality is contagious, but they never really are interested in exploring the depths of who God created you to be. You may be tempted to believe that you have a engaging personality and you are usefully talented and nothing more. Do you still want Christ formed in you as a friend? What if, guys, what if this life is indeed a race to the bottom? That it is supposed to be lived humbly and sacrificially and submissively following the example of Christ. 
biblical womanhood is a mystery to the world. But God, God has revealed a truth to us who know him. He has changed us who have chased after him. He has saved us and he has sanctified us who give our lives to him again and again and again. We know Christ and he knows us. And so we know as women that our purpose is not to strive to be in control. Our purpose is not to strive to become beautiful or worthy or enough. We know that in our quiet center where God himself dwells, that he finds us beautiful. He has deemed us worthy and in him we are enough. And we find joy in this truth. We find deep, deep satisfaction in this truth. We find freedom in the way we can relate to others in this truth. We can rest in this truth. Don't get me wrong, it's not easy. But it is so worth it. In the end, you may lose absolutely everything. Well, everything that is except God. Don't live to avoid what you most fear. Live to gain what you most want. So what do you want? Do you want to live in such a way that you reveal God or do you want to get your own way? If you desire to reveal God in the way that you relate to your friends and your spouse and your boss and your kids and your coworkers and your teachers, if you desire to reveal God in every area of your life, then I can assure you, you will be a mystery to the world. But God will see you. And he will say, now that is a woman. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this day. I just pray that you are glorified in us and that you become the thing that we chase after more than anything else in this world. I pray that you give us discernment to see whenever um, the world is inundating us with ideas of us being at our core things that come from striving for things that you did not design us to be. Lord, we love you and we are thankful that we are found in you. Amen. You guys are good to go.